Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started in our new study in 1 Kings tonight, how about that? It's been a while since we've had a new study. New study in 1 Kings. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word as we go back through a section of scripture that is not taught very often and is often uh, just hit and missed here or there. Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand these things, and there's some tremendous lessons in here for us, not only in terms of our own spiritual life and focus, but also in relationship to the health and well-being of a national entity. Father, we pray that as we study these things, we might be sensitive to the teaching of God the Holy Spirit and not miss the spiritual impact of these verses for our own lives in the midst of all of the uh, historical detail that we have to cover in the process. We pray that you guide and direct our thinking this evening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to start First Kings, but like I've been doing the last several years, we will start tonight and probably next week just doing introduction. First Kings begins with the death of David, which occurred about 971 B.C. And so Joseph died about uh, 1800 B.C., so we have almost a thousand years between the end of our last class on Tuesday night and the beginning of this class. So before we can get into 1 Kings 1, we sort of need to bridge that gap a little bit so everybody has an understanding of what has happened to the seed of Abraham from the death of Joseph to the death of David. So we're going to cover a thousand years in about the next 15 minutes. So you all ready? Fasten your seatbelt. Okay, when we come to 1 Kings, one of the first things I want to talk about is just its place in the canon. We'll come back to this later on, but uh, just understanding the Hebrew Old Testament. And there are three divisions in the Hebrew Old Testament. Now, English Old Testament is usually divided a little differently, but I think it's important to go back and understand how the Jews saw the organization, because there's a spiritual lesson there uh, for us, a doctrinal lesson, especially when it comes to interpretation. We look at the Hebrew canon, and there are three divisions. The first part was the Torah, and Torah means uh, law or instruction. The root concept in Torah has to do with uh, learning. Then the second section is the Nevi'im. The I-M is the plural ending. Uh, Nevi is the noun for a prophet. So this is a section called the prophets. 
And then the third section is the Ketuvim. Ketav is to write, and this is the uh, section called the writing. So unlike the English Bible, which starts off with the law, and then you have historical books, and then poetry, and then major prophets and minor prophets, that first section, that, or really the second section in, in the English organization, which we call history, is not viewed as just history. I think that's because Western civilization was deeply affected by a lot of Greek thought. And as a result, we look at history often as just sort of abstract chronicles. It's just random events that take place in, in, um, over a period of time. But when the Bible looks at history, what we would call history, it's much more than just uh, this is what happened. It is an editorialized or theologized history from the divine viewpoint where of all the mass of people and all the mass of data that took place over a period of time, God selects specific individuals and specific events because they teach about his plan and his program and his purpose for mankind and what he is doing. So there are uh, lessons, there are spiritual lessons to be learned, not the least of which is how to look at what happens in human history from a divine viewpoint so that you can come to history and understand it from God's perspective and not from man's perspective. And there's, that's a whole different uh, different issue. But uh, the history, when we look at the English canon and it talks about historical books, the Hebrew canon divides that a little differently. The first section, one we're familiar with, is the Torah, the first five books, also known as the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. But when the Hebrews came to the second section, when the prophets came to this organizing the book, the priests organized the Old Testament, especially after the exile, they divided it into two sections. This first section is what English Bibles usually classify as history, but in the Jewish Bible, it's the former prophets. The former prophets. These are written by prophets. Samuel was a prophet. We're not sure who wrote Joshua, who wrote Judges, probably maybe Samuel wrote Judges. We have Nathan, Gad, others who were writing in Samuel and maybe and some others in Kings. But we don't know exactly who wrote, but they were prophets. Then you have the latter prophets. These are the ones we normally think of, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, those big books that come at the last part of the Old Testament. And then for the Jews, they just pulled together the minor prophets into one grouping called the Twelve. So that's considered one book in the Hebrew canon. That's why the Hebrew canon only has 22 books, whereas the English Old Testament canon has 39 books. It's, they're just organized differently. Uh, they don't uh, look at First and Second Samuel as two books. It's one book. It's the book of Samuel, the book of Kings, the book of Chronicles. So we have the, the former prophets and the latter prophets. Now, one of the reasons I'm emphasizing this is I want you to remember what I've taught about the role of a prophet. The role of a prophet was not simply to foretell the future. That is often a misconception that people have, that prophecy is foretelling future events. 
there were many things that a prophet did when he confronted a king, and foretelling the future was simply a secondary element. What he was foretelling often had to do with future judgment for current uh, sin or future blessing in relationship to the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the other Old Testament covenants. The role of a prophet was to be the uh, mouthpiece of God. He was the voice of God. He presented God's, uh, God's word to the people. He represented God to the people, and as such, in many ways, he functioned in relationship to the Mosaic law like a prosecuting attorney. And when the Jews, when the nation disobeyed the Mosaic law, it was this prosecutor who came from the throne of God to challenge them and indict them for their disobedience to God, to read them the riot act and explain exactly what the punishment was going to be and what the consequences were going to be. So the prophet was always over the government. The, the Jewish kings did not operate on what later became known as the divine right of monarchy in European history, they were not autonomous. They were not an independent authority. They were under the Mosaic law and under God, and the, the prophet could always bring condemnation and judgment and could always challenge the decisions of the king. He's not autonomous. So the kings were anointed by a prophet. It is at the hand of God that they are put in their office and taken from their office. This is seen from Samuel anointing the first king, Saul. Samuel anoints David, and this all leads up to the anointing of the eternal Davidic king, Jesus Christ, by John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets. So when we look at these books, we see clearly with Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve, that they are prosecuting the nation for their disobedience to the law. But what we see in the earlier prophets in Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings is the same thing. They are giving the history of the nation in light of their obedience to the law or their disobedience to the law and the consequences. In Joshua, they are conquering the Canaanites. They are following God's mandates to annihilate the Canaanites until they begin to compromise. But generally speaking, Joshua is a story of how God blessed them militarily to conquer the land of Canaan. And so you see Israel on the ascendancy spiritually. But then as you get a different perspective at the beginning of the book of Joshua, you see the, the, the writer, I'm mean, excuse me, the book of Judges, the writer of Judges begins to focus on the sin that was there, the compromise that was there, that even though it was just a small amount of leaven uh, at the beginning, at the t during, and it was even obvious during the, time, during the book of Joshua, but that wasn't the point of the writer of Joshua. In the first two chapters of Judges, you move from the victory of the tribe of, of Judah to the ultimate defeat of the tribe of, uh, of Benjamin because by the time, as time went by, the tribes compromised more and more with the pagans around them. They disobeyed God. They didn't completely annihilate the Canaanites, man, woman, and child. 
but they they compromise, and the result is they have military failure and economic failure because of spiritual failure. And so you go through the book of Judges, and it is an indictment on the nation because everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Now, if you haven't listened to the series I did on Judges, you ought to, and it would probably be interesting to listen to it in parallel to what we're doing in Kings because there's a lot of parallels to, to uh, Judges and Kings because Judges starts off with Israel at the absolute height of their, of their spiritual uh, ascendancy, spiritual maturity. They're, they're, they're fresh from the victory over the Canaanites at the beginning of Judges. They've done, mostly done what was right. They've taken the land. Now they're solidifying, consolidating their hold on the land. And we see them and with the Joshua conquest generation walking with the Lord. But by the time we get to the end of, of Judges, then we see that they don't act any differently from the Canaanites. They're under the heel of the, uh, of the Philistines who are oppressing them. Uh, morally, spiritually, they are bankrupt. They're, they're, the way they live their lives is no different from the life of the Canaanites. They're worshiping idols. Remember that story we went through not long ago of how the, um, the Benjamites went north to, uh, our, excuse me, the tribe of Dan. I don't know why I said Benjamites. The tribe of Dan went north to Tel Dan. Now Tel Dan, back then it was Laish conquered the Canaanite city of Laish and established uh, a, an idol there, an, another sanctuary in competition with the uh, tabernacle. And it was set up by a grandson of Moses, so it had an air of legitimacy. So we go from the high point of spiritual victory at the beginning of Judges to the bottom uh, of just pure moral spiritual relativism at the end of Judges. Samuel comes along and it's we see how God takes them from spiritual bankruptcy through the Messiah figure of the Davidic king. And at the end of the book of Samuel, they are in a position of, uh, of empire and spiritual ascendancy and spiritual victory because God has provided, has dealt with them in grace and provided a savior who is the, uh, the anointed, the Mashiach from the house of David. So it foreshadows the gospel in a lot of ways. Kings is going to come along and trace what happens to the nation after the death of David as the nation imitates what they did during the period of the judges and compromises with idolatry, then later compromises with the, uh, the fertility religions of Baal worship and ultimately ending up out of, uh, out of the land. So that's why this is important to understand that the place of kings in the Jewish canon is it shows that it's a, uh, it's a prophetic analysis of the history of Israel, which, of course, is going to help us and reveal to us many great doctrinal principles. The last part, of course, is the section called the Ketuvim, which is all of the other books, the, what we call usually poetry, but also includes some historical books that we think of like Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and Chronicles. That's because these books are designed, not, again, not just to teach history, but to teach about how to live and how they were to live out of the land in Daniel 
and how they were to live back in the land in Ezra and Nehemiah. Esther teaches how God is protecting those outside of the land, and Chronicles is a rehearsal of the ways in which God provided for them in the kingdom of Judah, tracing the line of the seed uh, through uh, the Davidic line. Okay, that's just sort of an overview there. Now let's look at a timeline. Now this timeline, I built this chart to take us backward. Okay, I think that time, working these timelines is really important because we cover so much history and you have to sort of figure out who's, who's where, what happens when, what else is happening in the world. And that becomes really important as we go through First and Second Kings. We're going to come across all kinds of unusual names, names we're not familiar with, and names that sound uh, very similar. You have Joash and Josiah, and you have um, various names among the kings in the north and kings in the south that sound very similar, and so it's easy to get confused. And then and we have to understand all these new names and new people. Then we also have things that are going on around Israel, from the Philistines, uh, not the Philistines, but the um, uh, Kingdom of Tyre, what is now modern Lebanon, Tyre, and uh, and the uh, uh, Syrians, and the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Egyptians, as well as the Edomites and the Moabites. So we have to become aware of, of all these other nations and people groups, as well as their religious systems, because the Jews began to syncretize and synthesize with these other pagan religions. So there's a lot of things to cover, but we'll take it one little bit at a time, not overwhelm everybody, but let's first build this timeline. This is just looking at the patriarchs, okay, going back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what we've covered many times in our study of Genesis. So we start with the time of the cross, and we're going to work our way backward from known dates to unknown dates. Uh, we'll have a marker here at 1000 B.C., the temple was dedicated by Solomon in 966. We can we can date that fairly accurately, although I'm going to uh, make a comment here that all dates after about 722 are ought to be have a little cautionary note to them. I've been looking at four different conservative biblical chronological reconstructions over the last month and my head's about to turn inside out because they will vary as much as, uh, at this time period with the kings, as much as 50 years. But we'll, I'm primarily going to work off of the, the numbers from uh, a scholar by the name of Edwin Teeley until I can figure out some of this other stuff and make my own modifications. But these are the generally accepted dates, even though I think they may be off a little bit, or it's at least possible. So the temple is dedicated by Solomon 966. That means that five years earlier, he ascended to the throne. 971 would be when David died. There was 480 years between the temple dedication and the exodus. We know that from 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1. Clearly states that the temple is dedicated 480 years after the Exodus. So that gives us a date of 1446 B.C. Then we know that there was a period of 430 years of the sojourn in Egypt. So that takes us back 
1876 B.C. when Jacob entered Egypt. That would mean that Isaac was born in 2066 B.C. and Abram was born in 2166 B.C. Although I was reading one uh, scholar today working through his reconstruction and he dates Abraham's birth to 2300. So these are all plus or minus a little bit, but it's interesting. Nobody And everybody's wrestling with honestly using the numbers of Scripture. It's just that, as I'll point out as we go through the next couple of weeks, how they added up the years and counted the years in Israel is quite different from the way we do it in Western history. So that's one of the, one of the ways in which they do that. For example, if... Uh, you have two different New Year's in the Jewish calendar. You have the uh, ceremonial calendar. You have a New Year in the spring. And then the civil calendar, you have Rosh Hashanah, which we just celebrated a week ago, two weeks ago, which is the civil calendar. So which calendar are they using when they give you the number of years that a king reigned? Are they starting from the ceremonial New Year in the month of uh, Nisan, which is in roughly March? Are they starting from the civil calendar and Rosh Hashanah in roughly September, October, that time period? Then the, the, another way in which they counted dates was that if you, for, let's just use our calendar so I don't get you too confused. If you became president, let's say, of the United States on December the 30th and you died on January the 2nd, According to Jew, one form of Jewish reckoning, you would, have, you would have been in power for two years because they count the year of ascendancy as one year, as the first year of reign, and the year in which they died, if you reign in any part of the year, that's counted as a full year. Well, let's say you have, you have three kings that have very short reigns within a period of 12 months, that could come out to look as if they had reigned for four years when in our way of reckoning it would be less than a year. So you see when you start piling these things up and then you add the fact that many of them had co-regencies, which meant that one, if a king reigned for 20 years and he uh, allowed his son to be a co-regent 10 years into the reign and the son reigned for 20 years, then they would say so-and-so reigned 20 years and then his son reigned 20 years and to us that looks like 40 years but it was actually only 30 years because they overlapped. So you've got all these kinds of things and what really muddies the water is that both the northern kingdom and southern kingdom would shift their uh, way they would count these things uh, a couple of different times over their history. So it's enough to make you want to pull your hair out. So this, but this will give us our basic working scheme. This, these are the dates that are generally accepted, and we'll just work with those. But I'm just making a caveat here that I'm not going to die for any of these dates. Now, following the death of Joseph, the Jews are going to spend about 400 years in Egypt, part of that time as slaves after a pharaoh comes up who doesn't know Joseph. And the exodus will then take place in 1446 B.C. They will spend a year at Sinai. Then they will leave Sinai after they have 
made all of the uh, clothes for the priest and for the high priest. After they've made all the furnishings for the tabernacle, then they will celebrate the second Passover. The first was when they, the night before they left Egypt. They'll celebrate the second Passover, and then they will leave to go to the land. On the way, they come to Kadesh Barnea, which is where they send out the spies. The 12 spies, only two trust God, are willing to trust God. The other 10 are not willing to trust God, so God disciplines that generation and says they're not ready to go into the land. So they spend 40 years in wandering. So they enter into the land. The conquest begins approximately 1406 B.C., and it lasts approximately seven years, the main part of the conquest, to 1399 B.C. So you have seven years of conquest, major battles, Joshua, I mean, excuse me, Jericho, Ai, uh, major battles in the north and in the south. And then there's a period of consolidation where they're basically wiping up resistance in various places in the land and establishing themselves. The last part of Joshua is basically a real estate document giving the boundaries of all, for all the tribes. <clears throat> the period of the conquest ends approximately 1350 B.C., and then we have about 300 years for the period of the judges. This begins with Othniel, the first judge, and ends with the last judge, who is Samuel. Samuel's the last judge. Eli and Samuel both have their stories told at the beginning of 1 Samuel, but they belong to the period of the judges. So there's this 300-year period, and it's not until about second, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 9 that Samuel anoints Saul as the first king. So it's during this period of time that you have Israel, you know, they, they, they're delivered and then they fail. And then they go through 40 years of discipline. And then they have the second generation, the conquest generation, is on spiritual ascendancy and they're squared away. And then their sons and grandsons disobey God. And you go through a period of the cycles of discipline, six major cycles in the book of Judges. The book of Judges ends with the last judge in Judges is Samuel, but Samuel's life overlaps uh, Eli and Samuel. So we have the last three judges, or excuse me, the last two judges in the book of Judges are Jephthah and Samson, but Eli and Samuel overlap with Samson. They're just living in slightly different areas of, of the land. Then we have the period known as the United Monarchy. Uh, two, I mean, three kings in the United Monarchy. Saul, David, and Solomon. The book of 1 Samuel covers the life of Samuel, covers the death of Eli, and the anointing of Saul, the anointing, the discipline announced on Saul, the anointing of David, but David does not become king until 2 Samuel 1. Saul dies in the last chapter of 1 Samuel. So we go from Saul, David, Solomon. That is the... Solomon doesn't show up real well on that green, does it? Looks a lot better on my computer. Just the projector changes the color. So that gives us a, the scope of what happens historically. So we've gone through Exodus gone through Numbers, 
We've gone through Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel, and we come to 2 Samuel, which covers the reign of David. Everything except his death. And his death is covered in the first two chapters of 1 Kings. And that's called the... And usually scholars connect the first two chapters of First Kings with the last two chapters of Second Samuel, as, and they call it the succession narrative. We'll get into that a little bit when we get into the details of the uh, first chapter of First Kings, because this describes how the uh, seed of David is going to uh, take the throne at David's death. And there's a uh, obviously there's going to be a challenge to the throne because of the angelic conflict. Who would be surprised? Okay, another chart to look at this. We start off with the theocracy from Sinai to Saul. And then there's the period of the united monarchy, three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. Then in 931 B.C., there will be a tax revolt, and the ten tribes, which aren't always ten tribes, but they're always referred to as ten tribes, in the north are going to align themselves with Jeroboam, who is one of the chief aristocrats in, and leaders in the nation. And he was a major figure in Solomon's administration. But he had to go into hiding at the end because of uh, various problems. And when Solomon died, his son Rehoboam became king. And as we'll see when we get into it, Rehoboam refuses to listen to his older, wiser counselors and listens to the foolish young men and the people in the north revolt because he's going to increase their taxes, and they were already onerous from Solomon. So we have one of our first tax revolts in history, and the nation divides into the northern kingdom, which will be called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which will be called Judah. The northern kingdom has 19 kings. The southern kingdom will have 20 kings, No one in the northern kingdom follows the Lord. There are just a few in the south that follow the Lord. And the northern kingdom will go out under divine discipline in 722 B.C. when they are overrun by the Assyrians. And then the southern kingdom will last about another 140 years. And in 586 B.C. they go out of the land. And so that's the essence of what we see in... in, uh, First and Second Kings is this story of how they go from the glory of the Davidic and Solomonic kingdom to where they're out of the land completely, the temple's destroyed, the priesthood is in shambles, the people are in captivity, there are, they're scattered in the diaspora, you have groups in Egypt, you have other groups that are scattered uh, throughout uh, Asia Minor, north and all the way across the old Assyrian Empire, and later the Babylonian Empire, all the way to uh, India and China and who knows where else they went. They're referred to sometimes as the ten lost tribes. God never lost them, and they didn't get lost either. Because when the northern kingdom went out under the, the uh, fifth cycle of discipline, as the Assyrians were headed into the northern kingdom... A lot of the believers in the northern kingdom who had any frame of reference headed south. They they got out of the way of the onslaught of the invaders, and so you had elements of every tribe headed into the southern kingdom. So they all survive 
the, the onslaught of the Assyrians, so we don't have ten lost tribes. Sometimes people raise that in regard to Revelation, say, how is God going to you know, bring 144,000 from the ten lost tribes? Well, he knows who they are. And then after the exile, there's a return under Zerubbabel, then Ezra, and then Nehemiah. Okay, one last chart for orientation. And you'll never guess what this is going to begin with. The covenants. How do we understand kings and the covenants? Remember in Genesis I kept saying that that the importance of the Abrahamic covenant is that everything from Genesis 12 on in the Bible has to be understood in some sense within the framework of the Abrahamic covenant. And that's especially true of everything that happens in the Old Testament after Abraham. In fact, the other day I was having a discussion with another pastor about uh, interpreting wisdom literature and poetry, especially Proverbs, and that as as Solomon is training his son with the Proverbs, they, they must be understood and interpreted within the framework first and foremost of the Mosaic Law. And so when we read through kings, we always have to keep in the back of our mind the Mosaic Law, especially the blessings and the curses, the, the judgments that God promised on Israel if they disobeyed him. So the first covenant is the Abrahamic covenant. And I've drawn it out here like a, like a uh, spreading out uh, like a funnel because all the other covenants are part of this. The Abrahamic covenants revealed in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, Genesis 14, uh, 18, uh, various other passages in Genesis. Then the next covenant that's revealed is the Mosaic covenant. So everything else that comes after uh, in terms of revelation is in light of the promises, the mandates, the uh, judgments, and the blessings of the Mosaic covenant. Then Deuteronomy 30 gives us the land covenant. And then 2 Samuel 7 gives us the Davidic covenant, which we'll have to go back and spend a little time looking at because that's foundational. We've gone through this so many times. The seed of the woman. Then you come to the seed of Abraham. And then you come to the Davidic covenant that the Messiah is going to come from the line of David. And all these genealogies in the Old Testament uh, don't really relate to other people. You just sort of get a little mopping up operation, remember, with... uh, uh, with with Ishmael and with Esau and with those that aren't in the line. But those who are in the line, we get how old they are when they give birth to their firstborn son and how old they are when they die. And there's a lot of specificity given in all of those genealogies. Why? Because God is tracing for us the line of the seed from from Eve all the way down to the Lord Jesus Christ. We can trace it specifically so that we know exactly who the Lord Jesus Christ is and who the Messiah is when he's born. So we have the Davidic covenant, and much of First Kings is dealing with the outworking of the Mosaic Law blessings and cursings and the Davidic covenant, although what may surprise some of you is that the focal point really in Kings is on the northern kingdom. And what's happening there? It's Chronicles that focuses more and exclusively on the line of David and what happens there. And so the book of Kings comes within this flow so that we're able to interpret what's going on there because the frame of reference comes out of these 
these previous covenants. Now, just a brief summary. We have David and the Davidic dynasty. And just summary, with the, with the Davidic covenant, God promised Abraham a great name. He promised him a great land. And he expanded the borders and promised him rest at the end of his life. In 1 Kings 5, 4, we have that uh, reiterated to uh, Solomon. Then there were certain promises that were to be fulfilled after his death, that there would be an eternal seed, an eternal throne, which ultimately is in Jerusalem, and an eternal kingdom. That's what's promised to David in the Davidic covenant. Now, I know why I went through that fast, but we're going to slow down and go through uh, the passages related to the Davidic covenant uh, more specifically. Okay, let's get a look at uh, generally our chart on 1 Kings. You have a chart on First and Second Kings. That's the, the top one is the first one we're going to look at. We may not get to the others tonight, but we'll get to that one right now. This just is to give you the overview. This is our, our aerial shot at First and Second Kings, our, our flyover, so we can get a bird's eye excuse me, a bird's eye view of the topography of these. Two books. Actually, it's one book in, he- in the original Hebrew, just called Kings. We'll get into that as we go through the introduction. So we start with the first 11 chapters of 1 Kings is your first major division. Your second major division goes from 1 Kings 12 to 2 Kings 17. There's the, actually where they broke it had to do with the length of the scrolls and not with the content of the material. So they just said, okay, it's too, we can't write anymore on this scroll, let's cut it here. And that's why you have the division. Same thing with, with, uh, with First Samuel and Second Samuel. And then the last division is Second Kings 18 to 25. In the first section, we have the United Kingdom. It began with Saul, ends with Solomon and at the end of First Kings 11. And then we have a tax revolt. And we have a divided kingdom. The divided kingdom uh, lasts from 1 Kings 12 to 2 Kings 17 when under Hosea, the northern kingdom is wiped out by the Assyrian Empire. And then we have Judah alone, a single kingdom, uh, marching on until they are ultimately defeated by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. So that's, that's the overview Remember in um, when we went through Genesis, I said there was the early history of man and the early history of Israel, and there were four events and four people. And you could think your way through the whole of, of Genesis just in terms of four events and four people. Well, here you have three things, united kingdom, divided kingdom, and single kingdom. Now, if you can remember that, you've got all, 50, all the 50 chapters of first, first and Second Kings, United Kingdom, single king, uh, United Kingdom, divided kingdom, and single kingdom. In the divided, the United Kingdom lasts 40 years. That's the length of the reign of Solomon. The divided kingdom is approximately 209 years, depending on who you read. Remember, I said these, this chronology gets really. Flaky when you get into uh, when it, when you get into kings, 
And then the last section is about 135 years with the single, the single kingdom. It's really trying to figure out the length of the divided kingdom that gets, that gets, gets fuzzy. The United Kingdom is roughly from 971 to 931. The divided kingdom from 931 to 722. And the single kingdom from 722 to 586. David, the end of David's reign, and Solomon, the focus of the first 11 chapters. Then 1 Kings 12 to 2 Kings 17, we focus on Israel, its entire history of the northern kingdom, from the rule of Jeroboam I to Hosea and the defeat of the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom is covered from the reigns of Judah, in Judah to Rehoboam to Ahaz. And then the Second Kings 18 to 25, we cover the reigns of Hezekiah down to Zedekiah, the last king in the south. We have 11 chapters for the first division, 28 chapters of second division, 8 chapters for the last division. Okay, that is our overview. Now, what time is it? We've got about 15 minutes here. Okay. Let's get into the first part of this, just introducing the book, normal type introduction stuff related to the author, the title, background, organization, these kinds of things. First thing we'll talk about is the title. I don't have any slides on this. The title in Hebrew, it's from the Hebrew word malek, which is the word for king. Malakim is the plural. You have, it's called malakim uh, aleph and malakim Bait for First Kings and Second Kings, but originally it was one book in the Hebrew canon, and uh, the opening word in First Kings one one is Bahamelech and the king, and the books in the Old Testament got their name from the first word. That's how they would entitle things. So that Genesis, the first word in Genesis one one is Bereshit in the beginning. So that's the name of Genesis in, in Hebrew. First name, the first word in Kings is Bahamelech, so it's called Kings. And the content of the book focuses on the reigns of 40 kings of Israel and Judah, 19 in the north, 20 in the south, plus Solomon. And in the Hebrew Bible, these were all one book until the 16th century when they were uh, divide, divided up, and they were they were just called one book, and they were uh, seen as a continuation of the narrative that began in First Samuel. When it starts off, Bahamelech, the V is our English word and, and it's just a continuation. It's like there really shouldn't even be a break between the end of Second Samuel and the beginning of First Kings. In the Septuagint. Septuagint was the first to really divide the book of Kings into two books. They called it Third and Fourth Kingdoms. They called Samuel First and Second Kingdoms. So that would get confusing. You have First, Second, Third, and Fourth uh, Kingdoms. When uh, Jerome translated the uh, Old Testament into uh, Latin, he changed kingdom to kings. So he initially had First and second and third and fourth kings. First and second kings being what we call first and second 
Samuel. So our English by title is really based on the content that this is the record of all the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah uh, from Solomon down uh, to Zedekiah. terms of that's all about the title in terms of the author no one knows who wrote it uh, it the way it ends it indicates that it was written by someone who's in the Babylonian captivity that the nation has been wiped out the southern kingdom's been wiped out the temples destroyed and the kings have been hauled off captured by uh, Nebuchadnezzar and so it it suggested that it was possibly written by Jeremiah. In fact, the Babylonian Talmud in Tractate Baba Bathra says that Jeremiah wrote Kings while he was in Babylon. The trouble is that we know from that, that Jeremiah went down with the uh, Jewish uh, refugees down to Egypt after uh, Jerusalem was destroyed but we don't have any historical record of him going to Babylon. So that's just Jewish tradition, and it might even be rabbinical imagination, but we don't know for sure. That's just their, that's just their record. Uh, it's possible that there were a number of different uh, authors who had their work collated and finalized by someone like Jeremiah or possibly even, even Daniel. Uh, but there's no record of it. Some people think that uh, Ezekiel or maybe Ezra wrote it, but there's there's no certainty. It was, however, written between the fall of Jerusalem in 586 and and their return in 530 uh, about 536. So it's written somewhere in that period, probably about um, 562. It does. Um, mentioned the release of Jehoiakim from prison in the 37th year of his imprisonment, which would be 562 or 561 B.C., and there's no mention of the return to the land, so most scholars would date it around 550 to 560 B.C. There's some important dates that you need to be familiar with. The first is that the kingdom divides in 931 into the northern kingdom and southern kingdom, 931 B.C. The second is the fall of the northern kingdom, 722 B.C. The third is 605 when Judah is defeated but not destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. This is when the first uh, group of exiles are uh, taken out of the land by uh, Nebuchadnezzar, when Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are taken out of the land, that occurs in 605. Nebuchadnezzar is going to invade the land three times, 605, 593, and 586. And it's that first invasion when he takes uh, Daniel and his friends uh, back to uh, Babylon. And then 586 is the last day. Four dates, 931, the division of the kingdom, 722, the fall of the northern kingdom. 605, the subjugation of Judah. 586, the fall of Judah. 
It's a couple of important things are noted in the book. We have the phrase until this day, which indicates that the writer has talked about something that's still evident even when he is writing. So he puts himself very close to the action, uses the phrase until this day 12 times uh, in uh, the book of Kings uh, totally. Okay, we've looked at title, one, title, two, author, three, date, fourth, purpose. The purpose is to continue the narrative related to the Davidic kingship and the seed of Abraham where Samuel left off, beginning from the death of David. First Samuel covers the transition from the theocracy to the united monarchy, and Second Samuel focuses on the consolidation of the kingdom. First Kings begins with the glory and the expansion of the kingdom under Solomon and then its subsequent disintegration and eventual destruction in Second Kings. As I pointed out earlier, in terms of it has a historical purpose just to trace the line, but the most important thing is the theological purpose, that there is there there are lessons to be learned here that the writer is showing how God is faithful to his promise, both in terms of blessing Israel in terms of grace and in terms of judgment. The grace and judgment continue to be themes. I talked about those as major themes in Genesis, but they continue to be the themes that we see again and again uh, hiding behind everything that goes on in First and Second Kings. We have the grace of God, and providing for the nation and the judgment of God in disciplining them because of their disobedience. It also has a philosophical purpose because it gives us a divine philosophy of history. And this, I think, is so important. As someone who loves history, majored in history in college and did doctoral work in church history at, at seminary, um, this is it's crucial to be able to look at history from divine viewpoint and not from the viewpoint of economics or politics or race or technology you know you can you can see any number of philosophies of history that govern uh, historians thinking you, you you may think that history is just a story of what happened but history is no more a story of what happened than science is just simply a record of the discovery of, let's say, or biology is simply the discovery of fossils. There's an, you pick up a biology textbook, and they're interpreting the fossils for you. They're telling you that they're 5 million years old or 7 million years old or 50,000 years old, as if there's a little sign on there that said, Hi, my birthday was 3 million B.C., but there's no there's no time frame there. None of these fossils come with a birth certificate, so we don't know how old they are. Somebody is taking a philosophical framework and imposing it on the the data that you find in the rocks, and then they're telling you a story. Well, history is the same thing. History is not just the chronicle of, of, of data, that so-and-so was born on this date and died on this date, but any good historian is, is weaving, picking and choosing events and is is making a point. You go back even to the Greeks and, and 
Uh, they always say Herodotus was the father of history, but he wasn't. Moses was. And, uh, and God is because God is the one who tells you that history has meaning and purpose, and he gives us the framework for understanding that so that history isn't, like Henry Ford said, one damn thing after another. It has, it has purpose that all these random little uh, things like uh, pearls on a string are actually strung together. They're not just uh, loose if you cut a pearl necklace, cut the string on a pearl necklace, and all the little pearls scatter all over the floor, and you have to get down on your knees and pick them up. That's what most historians are trying to do, and they don't have any understanding that a string exists. But what the Bible does is it gives us the string that ties all the details together. And so that makes history something completely different because we understand that it is it's, it's his story. And the standard of evaluation for history is going to be divine revelation. In the Old Testament, that is the Mosaic Law. In the church age, that's going to be the New Testament. But it is embedded within Scripture because this is the revelation of the God who created everything. He is going to give us the data we need to be able to read the morning papers, unless you're in the New York Times, and uh, <clears throat> or the Houston Chronicle, get something that's got a little more objectivity to it, like the Jerusalem Post maybe. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but read, when you read anything about history or watch anything about history, then you take a step back. It's really hard to try to figure this out for what's going on today because we're too close to it. But you can take a step back and see the trends that are going on and analyze those in light of the revelation of God's Word. And what we find, what we're going to see in in kings again and again and again is the success and failure of a nation is not related to the accuracy of its political philosophy. It's not related to the accuracy of its uh, economic philosophy. It's not related to what we might call just and injustice in terms of a law code because they have a perfect law code because it comes from God. But it has to do with the spiritual orientation of the people. As goes the people, so goes the nation. And if the people are not oriented to God and to eternal absolute values, then that affects every detail within the culture. And leads. And if it's not oriented to God, it leads to collapse and destruction. And if it is oriented to God, then God blesses them and they have success in whatever they do. And it's not because they, the ultimate causation in history is not related to, like I said, political theory or legal theory or economic theory or even their philosophical construct. It's related ultimately to their orientation to God. Now, when we get into this book, we realize it's a historical, theological, and a prophetic narrative showing how God blesses the nation and or curses them in relationship to the covenants. And the basic principle we're going to come out of this with is that doctrine really matters. It really makes a difference what you believe about God. It's not just, it's great to have, like we have in our nation, freedom. But when people are free to be wrong, they're still wrong. We can talk about how wonderful freedom is, but they're dead wrong. And wrong when it comes to spiritual truth is fatal. It is deadly. And for my neighbor to believe and to promote and to be militant about that which is evil and false and idolatrous is destructive to me. 
Just think about that a little bit. He is destroying that which guarantees my freedom. And so we, that, that just gives us, an, uh, I think, a little more motivation in terms of evangelism and proclamation of the truth. Now, we're about out of time, but next time I'm going to come back and we'll start with those other charts going through each of these sections in the United Kingdom and uh, the divided kingdom and the single kingdom. And that'll give us our overview. And then maybe before we're done next time, we just might get started in First Kings, First uh, Kings one. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to study these things and to just orient ourselves to what you've revealed in this remarkable book. As we go through the history of Israel and Judah, we pray that we might be sensitive to the lessons that are there and that ultimately realize that that there are principles there that can be universalized and applied to our own lives and that we must not stand neutral or uh, dispassionate in terms of the way we look at Scripture but realize these lessons have been revealed by you as Paul says in first in second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen that they are profitable for doctrine, for teaching, for proof, for uh, correction, for instruction in righteousness, that we might be thoroughly equipped in every area of our spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.